everyone. You're listening to the Health and Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Alison Mitchell, a practicing naturopath, and you can find me on naturopathnsw.com.au. These podcasts will feature discussions on various health conditions, health tips, and nutrition from a naturopathic perspective. Sometimes it's just me, sometimes I'm interviewing guests. All the time, I hope to share with you information on health and well-being with the aim to empower and educate. Please remember that all information is general and not a specific recommendation that replaces consulting with a practitioner. Please talk to your healthcare practitioner before undertaking any changes to your treatment regime. So this podcast has been long overdue. If anyone's still out there listening, then you'll probably realise that it's been a year since my last podcast. 2017 was very full for me with a toddler. My clinic has been busy and I've also been lecturing. So as much as I love doing these podcasts, they have had to go down the priority list. As I don't make any profit from doing these, I do them out of the love of it and to try to help you guys out by bringing awareness to what natural medicine can provide. But now that my lecturing semester is finished, I've got some spare time and I've got a great episode lined up for you. I am pretty excited to share it with you because not only is my guest a fantastic naturopath who has so much knowledge and passion about the topic, but anxiety is a topic that I think is relevant to so many people. So I I did, unfortunately, I had some technical issues with my microphone whilst recording this particular podcast. And so you may notice that my sound quality fluctuates, but I got it to you in the end. I've also got some solo podcasts lined up about pain relief, so keep an ear out for those. So let's get to it. I hope you enjoy. So some of you may feel frustrated if you feel like you're doing all the right things, but your health issues just, they don't seem to be resolving. But the thing to remember is that every one of you are individuals and have individual reasons for why you are stuck. However, if you suffer from a tendency to be anxious, this may be the reason why you aren't resolving your health issues. There has been research that's shown that anxiety can make you more likely to have conditions such as thyroid disease, respiratory disease, gut issues, arthritis, migraine headaches, and also different types of allergic conditions. So I wanted to go into that a little bit more and I've invited my next guest here today to talk about the link between anxiety and health issues. Kimberly Vakurovic is a psychology trained clinical naturopath who specializes in treating anxiety related health issues and she is just fabulous. She's been working in the field of natural medicine for 18 years now, running a busy practice as a natural medicine concierge, and she uh, is just a fabulous at what she does. She's also an academic lecturer at Endeavour College of Natural Health, and she's also continuing her research by currently completing an honours in psychology. She's also the founder of the NMC Anxiety Health Education Movement, and she's really generously offering free education on different anxiety-related health conditions there as well. We went to uni together, and I work alongside her at Endeavour, and I can say I'm just so excited to have her talk to you today about this connection between anxiety and being sick all the time, or as Kimberly will call it, the anxious and sick merry-go-round. So, hey, Kimberly, welcome. Hey, Alison, thanks so much for having me. You're so, so welcome. So, can you talk a little bit about the concept of generally what this anxious and sick merry-go-round is and what you've seen? 
Yeah, look, uh, absolutely. Um, so, you know, in Australia, it's estimated that about 45% of people will experience a mental health condition in their lifetime. And out of that, in any one year, around 1 million Australians uh, have depression and over 2 million have anxiety. And um, I saw a trend in my practice um, of clients hitting a wall. And what was interesting is that the common denominator of many of these clients, when I say hit a wall, I mean that they were doing everything that we asked for their program. They were eating the right things. They were, um, you know, if they, if they were on supplementation, they were doing it right. Um, they were exercising. And the common denominator was that they had a tendency to be anxious or have a, uh, a diagnosed condition of generalized anxiety disorder. And so, um, you know, as you do, I decided, well, I'm going to go and get a psychology degree so I can understand this fully. Yeah, as um, you do. <laughs> as you do. And um, so I have a theory that's based on the science found a, uh, founded on biomedical uh, allied health and psychological sciences. And, and this is the theory. There are four main reasons why I call it a merry-go-round. So a tendency to be anxious coupled with something stressful, we call that a stressor, um, can create a heightened fight or flight response. So, you know, that where that fear response you get when you go to a scary movie and, and you feel all tingly and, um, you know, the heightened response increases cortisol levels. And this is a hormone um, that is increased when you feel that fear. And this negatively affects the brain and also suppresses gut and immune function. So we know that uh, high cortisol states will reduce your uh, hippocampus, uh, which is a part of the brain that is in control of your coping abilities as well as your hormones. Um, and it will reduce your prefrontal cortex, which is the part uh, where you need to use for concentration, for, um, for analyzing things. Um, and so this uh, brain damage uh, reduces your ability to cope with stress. And then that leads to a greater anxiety, while the suppression of the gut and the immune function leads to health issues. Then the last part of that is that the symptoms of the health issues, um, the health issues themselves, and the lack of the coping ability leads to more anxiety. That leads to more health issues, which leads to more anxiety. So that is why I call it a merry-go-round. I can totally understand that. It just keeps going, like it's a vicious cycle that keeps going and going and going. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't deal with the anxiety and you don't fix, you know, the good thing that we know is, is yes, we can uh, regrow hippocampal volume and prefrontal cortex volume. So we can pretty much reverse this brain damage. And we can, you know, as naturopaths, you and I both know that we can resolve health issues. Um, and, you know, if you don't work on both at the same time, uh, you're not going to get off this merry-go-round. So what is the difference between anxiety and stress? Okay, well, stress is a term we use to define anything that puts pressure on the body system. So, you know, this can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be mental. Um, and many think that when someone says that they're stressed, that it means they can't cope. Um, but people can still feel like they're coping well and still be stressed. So anxiety is a little bit different. Anxiety is a tendency to react to something that is stressful. Um, and that's termed as a stressor. And um, they react to it by worrying. And this is like, this is a lack of coping and being overwhelmed by the feeling of stress. 
So both can create a similar condition of that high cortisol, um, which is, you know, hormone produced by your fight or flight nervous system. And this cortisol can still create the brain damage and the health conditions that we're talking about. So the difference between anxiety and stress, though, is that someone who does not have anxiety has a higher probability of being able to cope with the stress and to remove it, whereas a person who has anxiety um, usually will get stuck because they're unable to problem solve and resolve the worry that's keeping them in that stress mode. That makes a lot of sense. So it's the anxiety that seems to be the one that really is promoting that health depleting effect of the stress itself. Yes, absolutely. It, it kind of, um, you know, stress will create it. But what, what you know, the, the problem with clients who have anxiety is that the anxiety will not allow them to get rid of the stress. They just can't talk to themselves logically and problem solve that, that dilemma. So at, at what point does someone that's experiencing anxiety actually realize that what they're experiencing is an actual condition? Well, I love that question because um, there is, you know, there is such thing as, as we all experience anxiety. It's actually quite normal to have periods of anxiety. Um, but there, you know, the we have something called the Diagnostic Statistic, Statistical Manual, um, the DSM-5. And this is what psychologists use to diagnose a condition and doctors and, and psychiatrists. Um, so according to the DMS-5, there are, uh, you know, quite a few criteria that would, uh, you know, say, okay, this is no longer just anxiety. This is actually a disorder. Um, and so what I'll do is I'll read out the criteria for you. So for, you know, your listeners, they can get an idea if they think they meet any of this criteria, but it's very important that they don't self-diagnose, obviously, and they actually go to somebody to find out if they're correct. Um, so, you know, to, to be diagnosed for generalized anxiety disorder, you need to uh, meet criteria A, which is an excessive anxiety and worry. And um, this is like an apprehensive expectation, like you're expecting something bad to happen, sort of like chicken little, you know, the sky is falling. And this needs to occur more days than not for at least six months. And it needs to be about a number of events or activities, um, not just about one or two things, um, such as, you know, you might worry about work, you might worry about your children, but you worry about work, you worry about children, you worry about, um, you know, the neighbor down the road that you've never met. Um, it's just this um, consistent apprehens apprehension. Uh, criteria B is that the individual finds it hard to control the worry. Um, and so it's just something that uh, they can't seem to get a handle on. Criteria C is that the anxiety and worry are associated with at least three or more of the following six symptoms. And this needs to be present for more days than not for the past six months. Um, and uh, just note that only one of these items is actually required in children. But for adults, they need to have at least three or more of these items. So that is a restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge. Um, that's being easily fatigued, it's difficulty concentrating or your mind going blank, it's irritability, um, muscle tension, and the sixth one is sleep disturbance. So difficulty falling or staying asleep or a restless, unsatisfying sleep. Um, the criteria D is that the anxiety, worry, or physical symptoms cause a clinically significant distress. This means that it creates stress in your life. Um, and this stress actually impairs your life. So it can impair your social, your work, um, and other important areas of your life and functioning. 
um, criteria E that the disturbance is not due to the direct physiological effect of a substance. So that it's not due to or a disorder. So it's not due to, you know, hypothyroidism or to um, drug abuse or to general medication. And the last criteria, criteria F, is that the disturbance is not better explained by another mental disorder or mental issue. So for instance, if you have anxiety or worry about having panic attacks, then that would be classified as panic disorder, which is really technically still an anxiety disorder. Um, but you know, if you're worried about, say, being negatively evaluated in social anxiety disorder, uh, sorry, in, in uh, social situations, they would call that social anxiety disorder, which is still an anxiety disorder. So you can see that there are a variety of different types of anxiety. They all fall into the one sort of umbrella category, but they're diagnosed differently. I think that a lot of people would probably be able to identify a symptom from some of those categories at some point in their life. But it's interesting how it's six months as being the time that a lot of those things have to occur for. That's a really quite a long time to be experiencing something like that and to be able to go without a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, I think the reason why they give it that six months is because the, the, the reality is, is that a lot of us do, uh, you know, normally experience some of those things throughout life. Mm -hmm. um, but when it becomes consistent and when it actually affects uh, your life in a negative way to where you cannot function for a long period of time, then, you know, it usually is a disorder. It's something that you need to get help with. Definitely. I'm interested, why is it only one of those extra symptoms for children rather than the three for adults? You know, that's a good question. I don't actually really know. Um, you know, I can only guess that uh, it's one of those, they want a higher sensitivity with children. Um, you know, we know that I think it was the last time I looked one out of every, one out of six children will have an anxiety disorder, mm -hmm. um, which is quite high. Uh, it is. You know, and I don't know if that is because the fact that they do make the criteria a little bit more sensitive. So there's just, you know, the one criteria versus the three. Um, yeah, but that's actually a really good question. I don't know why they, they have that uh, different stipulation for kids. Mm, yeah, possibly because, yeah, like you said, you don't want to have undiagnosed anxiety in children when that can be so much um, more affecting for them over a period of time. Absolutely. And there's so much that can be done. Um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that, uh, you know, well, we know anxiety is a predisposed condition to feeling anxious. Um, and so, you know, it's something that you sort of, I don't know if they want to say born with, but I suppose your temperament. So, you know, there are research showing that if you can get an early intervention as, as you know, as in a child, that um, there tends to be a, um, a, a, a you, you tend to not create habits from that anxiety as you have done when you, by the time you're an adult you know that ah so people with anxiety develop habits that perpetuate the condition yes absolutely there are quite a few habits that that people it's you know they're trying to i i, I label it chase the calm there's two chase the calm so you know um try and find a way to get rid of this horrible feeling of constant uh being on edge so they want to chase you know that feeling of just calm and relaxed and you know i guess zen would be another word um and then i have other clients who chase the dopamine so you know, anxiety and depression go hand in hand. So anxiety and a low mood. Um, so some of, uh, you know, my clients will want to chase that feel, that good feeling 
that you know and so they'll go to uh you know drugs such as um cocaine um they'll go to uh um you know overeating um eating disorders because you know when you when you eat food you you uh it's a party in your mouth you know you've got that dopamine reaction and that feels good um another could be you know um for the chasing the calm alcohol is a big one um trying to and then you know and then we go into medications as well and that can be a bad habit if it is a, a on, the only means of coping however medications aren't put in the bad category you know sometimes we need them yeah that's right and everyone's got a different picture yeah how does someone find out if anxiety is a problem for them well, there are two really common tests that you can take um, that can give you a little bit of an indication whether or not, you know, you might have anxiety as a disorder. Um, one is called the DASS21, and we call it the DAS21. It's short for Depression Anxi Anxiety Stress Questionnaire. Um, and the other one is the GAD7, Generalized Anxiety Disorder 7 because um, it's seven questions uh, and the DAS 21 is 21 questions um, so if you google either one you'll likely find an online version that you can take um, I do know the Black Dog Institute has a really good um, DAS um, and you know however it's really never wise to self-diagnose these things just give you an idea um, if there's a possible indication that you might have either, you know, the DAS tells you about stress and anxiety and depression, and the, the GAD tells you about, you know, the possibility of having generalized anxiety disorder. Um, they're only tools, and they're part of a diagnosis, so if you do feel like you uh, are susceptible and you rate, rate high, that it's best for you then to go and see, you know, you have two options. You can go and see your GP to get a mental health plan. Um, and that will give you um, partially Medicare-funded visits with a psychologist. Or you can go directly to a psychologist, um, or you can get a, a, um, a mental health plan from your GP for a psychiatrist. Um, however, what I would say is the, the, the best way to go is probably to go to your GP and get a, um, a mental health plan and go and see a, a psychologist first. So why would someone see a psychologist over a psychiatrist or, or vice versa? Um, for a psychiatrist, um, a psychiatrist usually will deal with really heavy mental disorders. Um, so a psychiatrist would deal with, you know, um, uh, what we call a, um, you know, possibly bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or um, like a manic depressive disorder, um, a really high rate of, of, um, of sort of suicidal tendencies. And so your GP will be able to tell you whether or not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, which one is better for you. Um, you know, but usually what will happen is that your GP, if, it's, if you're looking into depression, anxiety, and stress, and you're looking into uh, generalized anxiety disorder, these aren't two things that um, you, definitely, you, you need to actually jump to a psychiatrist. But, you know, let your GP filter that out okay so that's something you would need to be guided by your doctor as to what you would need now I, oh, I know you now I know you mentioned the GAD7 and DAS21 which are some surveys that I use a lot in clinic and they're just as good as a way for people to look back and you know to see how far they've come but apart from that are there any other tests that you like to use in your clinic 
Yes, look, there's there's quite a lot of tests that are used in what's called functional pathology. So there's general pathology where we take your blood and your, you know, urine, your feces. And, um, you know, there's usually your, that will happen in your doctor's office and you'll have will be Medicare funded. Um, then there's also functional pathology. And what functional pathology looks at is more the function of something rather than just whether something is, um, you know, within uh, reference ranges or without reference ranges. So uh, with functional pathology, you know, usually we want a few different tests to give us a picture. So there is the um, there is the urinary metabolites test, and this one can give us an indication about your neurotransmitters. These are your your chemicals in the brain. Um, you know, you've probably heard of again. We we spoke about dopamine. That's the happy. You know, when you're in love, you feel dopamine. When you eat chocolate, you feel dopamine. Um, we have the serotonin, which is a good but relaxed feeling uh you know we have gaba which is basically you know chill out it's 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 a real you know sedative type of neurotransmitter and then you have you know things like your adrenaline and um and uh things like your um your glutamate okay which is your excitatory so we have all these neurotransmitters that change the way we feel and it will tell us you know your levels of your neurotransmitters um, and the other test that we want to do would be if we're going to, you know, that's not a standalone test. It is uh, when we're doing tests, we always know that there's a certain amount of, uh, of um, error in a test. Um, so, you know, you don't take, it's not black and white. It gives you an indication. But then we also want to know about the hormones. So we want to know about cortisol. So you do a baseline adrenal hormone profile. Um, and these tests are done uh, by either like the, the, the you can do it by Nutripath or you can do it by, um, I believe that they now, they were HealthScope, they're now clinical labs. The baseline adrenal hormone profile will tell us about your hormones, so your estrogen, the three different types. It'll tell us your progesterone, your 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 testosterone, your your cortisol um, four times during the day, and these two things will give us an overall picture of what we think you know your nervous system function is actually doing. Uh, are your hormones in balance? Do you have high levels of cortisol? Um, are your neurotransmitters in balance? So these are my two favorite ones. Um, my third favorite one would be, uh, I always say to my clients that, you know, uh, if I was going to Mars and I could only take one functional pathology test, it would be this one. And this is called the complete digestive stool analysis, the CDSA. And I do the level three. And I like to do that with clinical labs. And I usually, the reason I do that is because there is a massive link between the gut and the brain um, and between anxiety and the health of your um, your health, your, your bacteria and your gut. So this gives us an overall view um, from your stool, uh, you know, the health of your, your gut function. Oh, I'm so glad that you spoke about the CDSA because I think it's just so important to remind people about that gut brain connection. And you know, there's, there's so much more research coming out now about that connection between mental health and, and the microbiota. It's just fascinating to see that awareness grow. Like we've been preaching about this link for ages. It's just, <laughs> it's just great to see the increase in talk about it now. The research on it has just exploded. You have gastroenterologists researching. You've got psychologists, neuropsychologists. You've got, um, you know, you just there's so many different fields researching this now that it's so easy now to find more and more research that is linking these two things. That it's starting to become uh, something that's not disputable. That's right. 
And the research is also so exciting for the tools that it provides us, especially with probiotics. It teaches it teaches us about the difference in the probiotics and their strains. The CDE test, it's expensive, a few hundred dollars, but it can be really informative, can't it? <laughs> the test can tell you so many things about your digestion, like what your bacteria levels are like, the balance between them, whether there's an excess of a particular type. It will also tell you whether you've got a parasite or a fungal infection. It will tell you how well you're digesting your food, whether you have any inflammation in your digestive system as well. It can pick up certain inflammatory markers. I really like also how it gives you a breakdown of the types of the bacteria, like whether you have maybe too many lactobacillus and not enough bifidobacterium for example (laughs) but gosh we could talk about gut health all day it's so in-depth there is a fair bit involved in getting that gut-brain connection happy and it's more than just bacteria microbiota the little critters they have to be fed and happy which is you know prebiotics and also their environment needs to be in good shape too Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I've done when I did when I first started doing my stool analysis, um, I could see how inferior some probiotics were to other probiotics and how, you know, the 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 the, the strains, it depends on the strains, the amount, uh, the combination. But you're right. You also do need. Um, you know, your, your dietary, um, like your fermented, your kefir and your, you know, and your, um, your different kimchi and different probiotics and then your prebiotics as well. But you're right. It's not just, yeah, it is, isn't it? And we could talk all day about that, couldn't we? Cause God, <laughs> one of our specialties is naturopaths. Yeah, I love it. You know, one of those things I learned that just awed me was how, Something that awed me about how something going on in the gut can impact on mental health was the way that the toxoplasma can affect mental health. It was seen that the mice infected with toxoplasma lose their fear of cats. So they just walk right up to the cats. They're actually attracted to their ur- the smell of their urine, whereas normally they'd be really afraid of them. So, of course, the cat goes, mmm, lunch, and eats the mouse. And then it's in the cat's digestion that the toxoplasma continues its life cycle. And this parasite can affect humans too. There's actually a, a pretty high infection rate. And there is a, there is potentially, possibly, a link between infection with toxoplasma and behavioral changes um, in these humans that are infected, such as, you know, more self-destructive tendencies and a loss of rational fear and possibly schizophrenia it's it's not properly confirmed yet but still very interesting essentially it it just adds to that message that if you have an imbalance in your microbiota whether it's a parasite like toxoplasma gondii or a bacteria or fungal infection it can just have such a big impact not just on mental health but on your overall health because it it affects everything doesn't it Absolutely. Because when there is a, and I think this is the thing, is that the public don't quite understand. I had this conversation with my my 18-year-old just the other day. I said, you know, we're actually more um, symbiotic beings than we are um, humans. We have, you know, more more uh, sort of microbiota, live bacteria, fungus, parasites type of cells than we do human cells. And um, which, you know, sort of flipped him out. <laughs> and we need, you know, we 
forget about um, the fact that, uh, you know, when there is an imbalance, if you do have a really high imbalance of a, of a parasite that is going to put out your healthy, um, you know, the balance of your healthy bacteria, it's a massive issue. Um, you know, because now you've got, when you've got that, that it is that difference in the microbiota that they're finding is, you know, in fact, we, I saw one the other day where it actually showed that the difference in a person's microbiota of clients who had IBS to those that didn't, there was actually also uh, a difference in the white matter in the brain. Oh, wow. There was brain damage. It's in, so ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's massive. It makes you wonder what the actual mechanism is. Like, so are there structural impact from them or is it a result of the inflammation uh, or the neurotransmitter neurotransmitter imbalances absolutely you know they don't know whether or not it crosses the blood-brain barrier but they do you know all they've been able to do so far is really see a correlation which is kind of weak you know we need more than correlations we need to to know do they do they actually cross the the blood-brain barrier is it is it something that they just create such a dysfunction in the gut that we're not digesting our nutrients you know because your proteins create your neurotransmitters so there's still so many questions they they believe that it's like when we first discovered that there was space before we knew you know before we knew there were planets and there were stars and there were it's like that's where we are at with the with the micro the human microbiota we are just Ah, I love that space analogy. Yeah, you know, it reminds, reminds me of Men in Black, you know, with the little little being that lives in a universe and this little tiny, uh, you know, ball on the cat's um, uh, bell on, on the cat's um, collar. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite in a way, isn't it? It's like we are going out, out, out with space, but with the microbiota, we're going in, 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 like smaller, smaller. That's cool. Is I, I'm trying to convince my 18-year-old to become a researcher because I'm just—he's so fascinated by all. And I said, "You have no idea if you started researching in this field. I don't think by the time that you 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 know you've lived your life that you will get to the end of it. It is um it's so fascinating. I think we're going to learn a lot more about ourselves as humans um than than we think we know. What are some ways that chronic stress or chronic anxiety can affect your overall health? Um, well, when you have chronic stress or chronic anxiety, you're creating that heightened, what we call again, that sympathetic dominance, that fight or flight. And that fight or flight, what we know about that is that that creates like a steroid, you know, the cortisol. Um, it creates a suppression of the gut function and um, and that basically the motility of the gut, the, 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 the gut's actual um, movement. And it can lead to all types of gut issues. So, you know, blood bloating, flatulence, food intolerances, cramping and pain, um, diarrhea, constipation. Um, so, you know, a lot of gut disorders can be brought on, and we know ulcers as well by this, this, um, that, this high level of, of cortisol. It also suppresses the immune system, and suppressing the immune system can lead to chronic infections. So it can lead to like UTIs, um, or you know, infections after intercourse. It can it can lead to yeast overgrowth. You know, I've got a lot of clients who have just can't get rid of um, you know uh, uh, yeast infections. Um, I know it's such a lovely topic to, to talk about, but you know, it's reality. And um, also, if when if you chronically are getting sick and chronically getting ill, um, allergies 
allergies and, and sinuses and, and things like that. Now, also, the suppression of both the gut and the immune combined can lead to, you know, autoimmune conditions. It can lead to skin disorders like your eczema, uh, acne, psoriasis, folliculitis. Um, and then the damage to the brain we were talking about before can lead to that, remember we were talking about the HPA access dysfunction, which that is the you know, master of your hormones, and it can lead to hormonal imbalance. So you know, then you can have you know, heavy periods or, or you know, endometriosis, or you can have light periods, or you know, PCOS, you can have um, thyroid conditions, fertility issues. So all of these combined really contribute to an overall clinical fatigue. So, you know, we call it clinical fatigue. Some people call it adrenal fatigue. Some people call it chronic fatigue. Um, but, uh, you know, it really can be a driver of so many uh, health issues. So health issues can create anxiety, but anxiety can create a lot of other health issues as well. Yes, look, it can. And, you know, we've got to be very careful not to not to jump straight into, oh, you've got this and you've got anxiety. This is creating this. Um, but what we do know is that if you do have uh, health issues and you do have anxiety, you need to work on both of them so you can see whether or not they're affecting each other. And there is a high probability from, you know, our statistics that it is. It really does go to show that everything is so connected and how you, you need to deal with everything all at once. I have a little term that I use when I'm explaining it to patients sometimes that how you need to treat the gut and the mind at yes. the same time. And I call it back-end, front-end therapy. So you can't treat one without the other. Treat one. I like that. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. That sort of approach where you look at everything, where it's interconnected, is often missing. I think that's a bit of a shame. And I think that's the thing that's quite disjointed at the moment in our medical system, um, which I think has a lot to do with a lack of communication between fields um, rather than, uh, you know, any real animosity um, when, you, when you're talking about um, psychology and naturopathy, you know. Um, so, you know, psychologists understand the whole theory of psychology and they understand anxiety, they understand, you know, and as naturopaths, we understand, you know, the theory uh, of, uh, of the body, the physical, the, the anatomy, physiology, and the gut especially. And um, so, you know, you'll often find that you either somebody goes to a naturopath and they want to try and help themselves that way, which will be great. You can work on the gut, you can work on the physical, you can try and do some things that will help the anxiety, or they go to a psychologist and they work with a psychologist and the psychologist can help them with the, the mental emotion, the catastrophizing and the, and the anxiety and the worry. But if you're not doing the two together, you're not really doing what I like. You, you said, you know, that, that um, was it back end front end therapy. You're not really we're coming at it from both. So my biggest suggestion would be that you find yourself, you know, either a naturopath who's also a psychologist or you find yourself a naturopath and a psychologist who will work together. That would be amazing to find someone with your credentials, but with the exception of someone like yourself, that might be hard to come by. So that team approach sounds wonderful. In fact, I think it's really key when treating something like anxiety, because unless if your way of thinking is corrected, it can keep coming back. Absolutely. Um, in the past, I usually have suggested something like cognitive behavior therapy, or sometimes even 
hypnotherapy. Absolutely, because anxiety is actually a lot harder to deal with than stress. As naturopaths, we have a lot in our, um, you know, uh, in our, our toolbox that we can handle stress, but anxiety is a predisposed condition to that chronic worry, and you really need to understand how to get in and under that and change those thought processes. And, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is, is probably the gold standard for that. So cognitive behavior therapy, that's yeah. sometimes just referred to as CBT therapy. It has a lot of research behind it, doesn't it? Yeah, CBT. Yeah, that is the goal. That is the most researched and effective for anxiety disorder conditions. What I like about CBT therapy is that it's something that works a lot quicker than standard counselling, possibly because the technique is more about teaching you techniques and changing your self-talk rather than just, you know, discussing your issues. Yes, well, that's what's so beautiful about it is that, you know, really what the psychologist is trying to do is to give the uh, client um, the tools to be their own therapist. So they're teaching them how to use critical thinking skills with their thoughts. It's not so much about trying to change thoughts because that's really hard to do. You know, try and try and make yourself stop thinking about one specific thing, somebody's name, and you'll think about it more. That's research. You'll actually think about it more if you try to not get about it. Hmm. Yes, that has definitely been the case for me in the past. Not just not thinking about something in particular, but even in like doing something like, don't trip, don't trip. Oh, cool. I just tripped. (laughs) So does everyone who experiences anxiety chronically have a predisposition to anxiety? Um, not necessarily. So as we, um, you know, chatted about before, generalized or general anxiety. So the the um, the response to be anxious to something is quite normal. Um, and but but that kind of general anxiety and generalized anxiety disorders are two different things. Um, so most of us worry to some extent, but those who have a predisposition um, to worry indiscriminately about everything um, are are more likely to be that generalized anxiety disorder. So, you know, their worry is unproductive. And no matter how much they worry, they can't seem to come up with a solution to their problems or the situations. And they can't stop worrying no matter how much they realize that it's actually not helping them. Um, and it might be negatively affecting, uh, you know, how they function in life. So is that those people who catastrophize? Absolutely, yes. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's more of a predisposition to meet a stressor with catastrophizing. So to meet something that you're worried about with more worry. Mm. You know, I've um, been doing a bit of reading on on an unrelated topic on pain management. And so for the people who catastrophize, they're more likely to experience chronic pain after an injury um, or even after a surgery as well. So again, it goes to show how much this sort of predisposition to that tendency can have an impact on so many different things. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you're catastrophizing, if you're feeling pain, you're catastrophizing, you're increasing that cortisol. Um, and that cortisol is increasing, um, you know, the, the, the feelings of pain, um, then yeah, absolutely. You can see how that's a bit of a cycle as well. Mm. And the, the message, the 
one of the things that I was learning is that pain is also about how you perceive a danger signal as well. So if you actually think, oh, that's it's not too bad, then you're going to experience less pain about that response than you were if you thought, oh my God, that's terrible, then it would really hurt. So, so much of it is that stress response. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And, you know, they've seen too in, um, in biopsychology and neuropsychology that uh, they've done studies where they could see that uh, people with physical pain and then they've taken a group with emotional pain where they've just had a very, um, they've just had a breakup or they've just had a, a death in the family, um, some form of emotional pain and that they, uh, they basically trigger the same areas in the brain. Mm. And so, you know, their conclusion to that is that the perceived pain, um, the emotional pain is, is actually just as painful physically for us as a physical pain. So your uh, heartbreak actually physically hurts. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, that's, well, that's what they said, you know, that's what they, 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 they're saying from those studies is that mm. they do believe that the, the perception, the mere perception of being hurt or injured will create uh, a physical pain. It's fascinating. Isn't it? You can just <laughs> delve on that rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. So just going back to what we were saying before about like how people who are in a situation can experience anxiety. So for those who are actually more so affected by this situation rather than to have that general tendency, what are some steps or some techniques that you could suggest to these people to, to deal with the situation or if, even to leave that situation? Well, I like to, you know, I've got a little, uh, a little um, uh, term I've sort of coined, you know, chase the calm, C-A-L-M. I always spell it because I think that my, um, my uh, accent sometimes, you know, people go, what, the calm? Um, so, you know, chasing the calm, <laughs> you want to, um, you know, like CBT, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is something that they do a lot in, um, in psychology circles, um, where they go through your thoughts, your, um, your, it's not so much about changing your thoughts as it is to changing the way you think about your thoughts. So it's about critically reflecting on what you're thinking and kind of challenging your thoughts because emotions are always tied to thoughts and thoughts are tied to emotions. So for instance, if, um, if you have a thought that someone, um, is being mean to you, uh, it's then about challenging that thought, uh, critically by saying, okay, well, what are some of the, um, what are some of the things that I can, I can measure to, to know whether or not this person is actually, uh, being mean to me um, and you know and is that perception correct uh, and if that perception is correct and then going to what can I do about that you know what what steps can I take can I approach the person can I so it's about problem solving and it's about the way that you actually think about your thoughts so on the other hand if that thought is incorrect you might be hurt every time that you see that person not realizing that you know maybe the person um, is is dealing with things of their own and and they're they're not meaning to project it on you so there's not really a meaning to be mean um, but you're perceiving that so cognitive behavioral therapy is about helping you to uh, put down the thoughts that are connected to your emotions and then critically thinking about those and then coming up with with ways to solve those problems another thing that a lot of people like to do is called mindfulness um, and that is where a lot of the time when you are 
feeling anxious, it's because you're projecting about something you feel is going to happen in the future. Not necessarily something that's happening right in the presence. Um, and so it's about being mindful of being in the now. And, you know, if you're in a, um, in a relaxed environment and you've got a nice cup of tea and you're, you know, or you're having a really nice meal, it's about thinking about the flavors of the meal, thinking about chewing, thinking about swallowing, you know, thinking about uh, what you can hear, what you can feel, um, and where you are in the present. There's also meditation, which is very similar to mindfulness, except for it's a little bit more about um, calming your mind and, and, and clearing your thoughts um, and just allowing yourself to be in a state where you, know, you could listen to your breath uh, you can listen to sounds outside. You can feel your body and your presence, but you're trying to sort of shut your mind off. Uh, and then, you know, there's there's a lot of other ways that people can chase the calm. Some people have a variety of different ways they like to do that. And it's always, you know, everybody's an individual. Um, another way is by medication. Uh, you know, medication is not a, a, a horrible thing. Medication has its place. And for some clients who feel like they just can't get that feeling of calm, they've got that real heightened anxiety, it turns into panic attacks, um, you know, they may need a little bit of help. There may be some antidepressants or, um, you know, if, if it's really quite severe, they might use something like a benzodiazepine. We all know Valium um, from the movies. Um, and those can help short term as well. Usually we, you know, you try not to have those be on those for longer than a year while you're working on uh, other ways to, to help yourself calm, uh, become calm. And then herbs and supplements. We have so many herbs and supplements that can actually help that physical feeling of calm. Oh, I love it. And, you know, one of the first things you were saying about the CBT is um, so interesting because I think that so many people always do think that their thoughts are correct. And so I, you, like the example you gave was this person is being mean to me and it's like, well, they actually might not be. You just might be incorrectly thinking that. And um, Absolutely. and so using, using your own sort of logic person, so you've got um, emotional alley and then logical alley and so logical <laughs> alley has to come in and say well let's let's think about this and uh, is that really actually happening the way that you're perceiving it so I think that's something that really does need to to happen doesn't it um, and you know it's not something we do naturally when we look into psychology and the way that we naturally um, react to situations as humans um, we are we're wired to react quickly you know, if we stop to think about everything, like if we stop to think, oh, I wonder if that car is, is, uh, is, you know, too close for me to, to cross the road. And then you stop to think about it. And then you think, okay, well, look, I'll just test that theory. And by the time you do, you walk into the road and the car's already there. You know, we, we have this uh, um, way that we, we come up with um, reasoning and we come up with the actions that we should take very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not normal to think critically. Critical thinking is not a normal human process. It is something that takes a lot of work. Um, and, you know, why scientists usually have to do a four-year degree to even start, to even to begin to think critically. Um, yeah, so it, it takes work. Yeah, we're just it, – isn't it um, something along the lines of it's actually just easier for the brain to function and requires less glucose to rely on 
your own sort of bias and um, what's the word? Absolutely. Um, stereotyping. Yes, absolutely. Um, so you, you see someone in a um, biker's outfit and you automatically think, okay, they're going to kill me because they're wearing that outfit. And yeah. so as opposed to thinking, well, maybe not all people in, in that um, costume or religious outfit are actually threatening to me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. that's the, the, there's, um, we, we call them um, um, heurisms, you know, uh, and it's when you, you know, if I said to you, Ali, let's go out for dinner you would have a heuristic in your mind about what dinner would entail. So you would think, okay, I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to go, we'll get to dinner. They'll give me a menu and this is how it's going to go. So we jump. And what we've learned too, is that, um, if we, it's the same with memory and why memory. So, uh, you know, fallible is because it's selective. And if the body has, if the brain has holes in the memory, it will fill those holes in and it will make it one continual, logical um uh you know uh point of time uh you know so for like 9-11 they took people and they they immediately after 9-11 happened they had them write down what they saw and then six months later they had them uh recall again what they saw and they you know whereas before they did not say that they saw the plane go into the building they did not say say that they saw the towers come down they basically just said they heard noises there was dust everywhere they couldn't see anything um now all of a sudden all of these people saw clearly the plane go into the building the building collapse and come down and that had more to do with the media and what was on the media and that was filling their memory that was filling in the blanks of what they didn't see and what was confusing in between the time when they were just running blind. Um, so it's quite interesting how our, we really do tend to want to. But, you know, they really believe that that's what they saw. Do you think that would have an impact on something like post-traumatic stress disorder as well? Like um, when people might actually worsen their experience over time on how they're creating the memory? Yes, absolutely. With post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, they used to think that the theory was that it would be really good to debrief afterwards. So to recount this, you know, the, 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 the situation that happened to relive it, to try and, um, to try and dampen the emotions attached to it. But studies have actually shown that that can actually worsen PTSD. Um, and sometimes people have processed the situation and then they go in to do debriefing and now it's brought back up to the surface again and um and it's it's basically worsened it so it's no longer protocol just to go straight in and debrief uh so yeah that could definitely be an issue with with ptsd so that sort of goes against all the things that people think about how to help someone that's gone through a stressful situation is, do you, do you want to talk about it? So yes, not, not, not always helpful. Yeah. But you have to talk about it. If you don't talk about it, how are you going to get over it? Absolutely. It's not, it's, it's, it is a myth. And, you know, I keep coming back to CBT because that, is, that has to be probably the most researched, um, technique or therapy in psychology for anxiety and depression and, and many other states. And it really doesn't have anything to do with rehashing your past. It has to do with your thoughts that are connected to your emotions. And if those are connected to your past and you want to go through them and you feel that that's useful, then you can. But 
Yes, it's definitely not, hmm, sit on my couch and tell me, you know, let's go through everything you've ever, uh, you know, gone through. Do you know any of the statistics of how many um, sessions of CBT it takes to have an impact compared to a counselling session? Well, it's quite individual and it's very interesting. So it's kind of like naturopathy where, you know, we, we could see them once. And, you know, you don't see them again thinking, oh, they, you know, they, they must just not have, have gelled with me. Uh, and then you see them, you know, later on, bump into them in, in the supermarket and they're like, oh, my gosh, my whole life has changed. I'm, you know, <laughs> and it was one appointment. So it's very similar in this in the sense that it depends on because it is a collaborative uh, thing. It is something that the therapist and the and the um, and the and the, the client work on together. And there's homework as well. Really does depend too on how diligent the client is in being able to complete that homework, being able to um, to be open to the process. So in general, they say uh, you know six to twelve sessions. Um, I, I believe that if you go to get a mental health plan from your GP, that they give you, I think it's six sessions and then you can go back to the GP and um, that's under Medicare. Medicare covers most of that. I think there's only like a $40 gap and, uh, and then you can go back to your GP and your GP can request an additional four. So I believe you get 10 sessions. That's awesome. So definitely worth looking into. Absolutely. What do you think about hypnotherapy? Well, um, hypnotherapy is definitely one of those that are up there along with meditation and mindfulness. Um, you know, mindfulness meditation, it, it doesn't have as much research behind it as CBT does, but CBT is not for everyone. And, um, you know, it, some people will gel with it, some people won't. Uh, and then same thing with, I, I believe, hypnotherapy. I think some people fare very well in hypnotherapy. Um, I've known some people who have fared very well in hypnotherapy. Myself, I've tried it and I didn't fare very well. I just, I just, I, I don't know if it was, you know, the, 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 the control, my controlling nature. I had a really hard time letting go. <laughs> I just refused to be put under, although I was very open to the process. There's, you know, there's something in my psyche that just went, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, so yeah, but there, there, there are definitely, um, there are definitely psychologists that do hypnotherapy, counselors that do hypnotherapy. It sounds, it seems like something that, again, like you said, is really individual, but it's it's interesting. So I guess knowing that there are those options is always a good place to start, and then you can find out what's best for you. Yes, absolutely. So, do you think that anxiety is something that keeps coming back? Well, if it's a disorder, then yes. If it is a tendency to meet worry with worry, then that tendency may not necessarily go away. That may need to be managed. Um, it's sort of like when you have your, you know, a temperament. If that is your temperament, if your temperament is to be um, shy, then you may need to work on being uh, more extroverted and, and vice versa. If your temperament is to be extroverted, you might need to work on damping that down and being more introverted. So if this is your tendency, your temperament, um, then yes, it may come back. And what we do know about uh, those who are diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder is that uh, it's, you know, it's often called a treatment resistant condition. 
And the reason for that is because it does, uh, it goes and then it comes back and it goes and it comes back. Um, my theory is, you know, that it goes and it comes back, not only because of the catastrophizing, but because of the damage that is done from the catastrophizing, as we spoke about before, that anxious and sick merry-go-round. I really truly believe that if we work on the body physically at the same time as the mind, we might not find it such a resistant uh, condition. We might find that we'll get a little bit further in, in being able to keep that at bay for a little bit longer. Um, but research basically suggests that it follows a chronic course. It, it waxes and it wanes, um, like I said, comes and goes. And um, yeah, so basically, yeah, it can come back for those who are just anxious because of something specific. So like a phobia of snakes or a phobia of, you know, uh, if they cure their phobia, they can uh, get to a point where that doesn't come back. They don't get panic attacks every time they see a little eight-legged creature. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, I guess phobia is, um, is a whole different sort of kettle of fish, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And it's part of the anxiety um, picture. And, and that's one thing that's, you know, and that's why it's always really good to go to a professional. It's always really good to go to a psychologist um, and get a proper diagnosis yeah. because the anxiety can be from a variety of different things. And for you to really know what is the best treatment for you, you first, you know, a lot of people get a little bit funny about a diagnosis they're being labeled. But um, as you know, that in the healthcare system, the reason why we have diagnoses is so that we can look at the body of research that shows us what are the best treatment plans for that condition. Um, and so it's, it's actually really good to get a label. So you can at least go, oh, it's this. Okay, great. So we know that this, this, and that works really well for this. Whereas mm -hmm. if it's something different, you may not use this, you may use that. And um, yeah. Yeah, you might not use an antidepressant for anxiety and you may, may not use an anxiety medication for depression. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and you could find that, that you know, you don't realize that your anxiety is actually a social anxiety. And if it's a social anxiety, you're going to do something possibly different than if your anxiety is a phobia. Yes. Yeah. Or if your anxiety is actually from an obsessive compulsive disorder. So it's really good to find out exactly where the anxiety is stemming from. Mm. And that, again, comes back to that whole approach of needing a team to care for you as well. So, yes. yeah, a doctor, a psychologist, a naturopath and or a nutritionist, so, someone like that. <laughs> I'm starting to think more and more that, you know, all medical centers should just be um, uh, diverse and they should all have, you know, be multidisciplinary. Yes, that's the dream. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so going back to um, some of the treatments that you were suggesting before, you mentioned herbs and I always like to, to finish off my podcast about favorite herbs. So can you talk a bit about what your favorite herbs are for anxiety? Yes. Um, well, we have classes of, as you know, we have classes of herbs. Um, and so there are four different classes of herbs that we usually use for anxiety. Um, one is called anxiolytics. Uh, and these ones are basically, you know, anti-anxiety. These are, are usually um, mild sedatives, um, and, but they help with the nervous system function. And some of them can also be, uh, can help elevate your mood as well. 
Um, and the thing with these classes as well is that some herbs will overlap into a variety of different classes. So I'm going to say the four classes first, and then I'm going to extend my favorite herbs that are in those. So we've got the anxiolytics, which is our anti-anxiety. We have the hypnotics, which are, um, you know, if anyone's ever had beer, uh, you know, it's the hops in beer that creates that euphoric feeling. So a hypnotic is something that just makes you feel euphoric. Uh, and then we have sedatives. We have sedatives going from very mild sedatives to very um, heavy sedatives. Uh, and then we have adaptogens. And these are herbs that help us to adapt to stress. Um, and, and they're often also called immunomodulators. They help with the immune function because they help us to adapt to stress, therefore helping us to stop suppressing our immune function. So the anxiolytics, um, you know, if we want something that's sort of anti-anxiety, uh, kava would be one of my favorite ones. Uh, research has shown that they think that kava works on the GABA receptors, um, there is research uh, that has uh, uh, been done with kavas and, and against benzodiazepines with a very similar outcome. Um, so I always think of kavas like benzodiazepines. I always think of, you know, these are what this is what we want to use when there's a, a real serious anxiety. There's panic disorders. Um, and and uh, it can it, it can really quite help. The one thing with kava, though, is that. It's some people it really, works really well with, and other people, they don't gel with it very well. They can get headaches on it, or it just makes them feel off. So, you know, it really is um, patient-centered. Uh, another one of my, uh, the ones that I love uh, that is really sort of a heavy one, I always joke around and say, this is like our, this is like our naturopathic um, marijuana. You know, it's probably the closest thing we have to like a medical drug. And that would be California poppy. Um, and, you know, I think California poppy is one of our best kept secrets because it is such a fantastic sedative. It is a fairly heavy sedative. Um, you know, I, I, I always guinea pig my herbs. So I think one time I had, I had taken 2.5 mil, which was a lower dose of California poppy right before I made dinner. And it took me four hours to make a dinner that usually takes a half an hour to make. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> But are, I was are you generally sensitive to herbs? <laughs> no, I'm not actually. Like with Neurocom, I usually have to take six or eight or ten of them. Yeah. So, yeah, California, it's a really, and I have not, I've yet to find uh, clients who react negatively to California poppy the way they do with kava. So I really love California poppy. Mm. Um, but it is definitely not something you take during the day. It's something you take at night before you go to bed. Um, or I'll give people drops. And um, they can take a drop dose during the day to help them calm down. Um, I also, I use lavender as well. I try uh, not to use high doses of lavender because, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't know that high doses of lavender can actually send people into a bit of a depression. Mm -hmm. So it can really depress the mood. So lavender is really great in a, in a, in a sort of a, a low to a moderate dose, never really that high dose um, from what I've seen in clinic anyways. I also love green oats. I think of green oats as like, you know, if you're on a roller coaster ride of emotions and it just sort of makes you feel like you're you're floating, you know, um, in the ocean. It's a nice calm ocean, you know, instead of instead of all the waves. 
And then Mexican Valerian, I like over Valerian. Valerian yeah. sometimes can, you know, people say, oh, you know, woken up with night terrors, you know, woken mm. up screaming. I don't get that same clinical um, presentation with Mexican Valerian. And I, so I really love Mexican Valerian. I, I Sometimes I do a half passion flower, half Mexican Valerian, even for the daytime. Um, but it's a good nighttime herb as well. Passion flower is my favorite. Me too. It is <laughs> passion flower because yeah. you can give passion flower if your passion flower is this melissa and lemon balm those herbs are so gentle i i think you know i give those to a, a newborn if i wouldn't really give herbs to a newborn but i mean it's <laughs> they're so gentle and so safe yeah. that i wouldn't be worried giving them to you know i'd be, be okay giving them to most of the population and during the daytime um i remember i had to i had to give a speech I did grand grand rounds at the um, where was it uh, St Vincent's private hospital, and uh, for oncologists, and it was the first time I, I I'd ever done anything like that. And I think I took about fifteen Neurocom, which has passion flower, uh, lemon balm, zisophis, and and I think Melissa in it. And I was I was so calm, but I was still with it. I was still able to do the talk that I need to do. I didn't feel incapacitated or sedated at all. So I love those herbs because they help you to stay calm, but still, you know, be able to function. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, that is a pretty big dose of neurocalm. Considering it is. That. I was thinking about 26 before, 26 or 27. Like I said, I like to guinea pig myself and see. I wanted to see, could you sleep on the plane with neurocalm? <laughs> my my outcome of my of my study of one was no you can't sleep neurocom won't get you to sleep if you're uncomfortable <laughs> however we did when we when we took off we were coming from america and it was like midnight by the time we all got on the plane we took off and i'm just sort of sitting there i had an aisle seat and i'm looking to the left side and we get up in the air and we hear this massive bang and a big ball of fire went went across the left wing <laughs> And I can remember just going, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> now we have to get off the plane. I was, I, you know, I'm so tired. I just want to go. What to an inconvenience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't, you know, I was so calm. However, not drugged calm, not to the point where I didn't know what was going on. But I thought, you know what? In a situation like that, I would have been the best person there because I'd be like, oh, just chill out. There are the exits. Okay, wait till we land. Let's get in the position. But it was a good thing. We we, we weren't that that far up before we just landed and then we all got off the plane and, oh. and we had to take a plane a couple of days later. But neuro That is a pain though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was such a pain. But, you know, oh. it's great. I didn't, you know, the whereas I probably would have freaked out. As, as you do, as everybody yeah, else. Yeah, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Yeah. We're all going to die. We're in the air. There's a big ball of fire, a massive explosion. What's going on? Um, and it ended up just being a backfire, something like, you know, too much too much uh, uh, petrol through one engine. It was no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so I like to guinea pig these things. You know, they, they really do um, – gosh they work they work so well and it's it's such a shame that a, a large majority of people don't think they do or they don't know they do um and they don't know how they do and um so it really is a best kept secret i, I believe in the world of anxiety and depression uh you know they don't realize i think when i say they i mean psychiatrists psychologists um and gps don't actually know what we have 
and what we can do. Mm, so many gifts that we have for them. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's us, you know, when we talk about their nutrients, like mm. L-theanine that shows that it, um, it, it helps to slow down the alpha waves. We've got, uh, uh, we've got GABA that actually affects GABA receptors, which is our, in, in, in our inhibition, um, uh, or creates inhibition. And we have things like, you know, um, uh, NAC, N-acetylcysteine, which helps with that glutamine and that, and that GABA balance, which is the excitatory and the, and the inhibitory. And it helps to sort of modulate that. Um, you know, there's just, and then SAMI that helps to increase dopamine. And so I, I've used SAMI quite successfully in patients who have tremors, um, because of, uh, their anxiety conditions. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much we have. Yeah. I, I think, um, all of those I have found so such good success with and um, I love them. I, mean, I would probably say the SAMI is something you definitely need to have um, a discussion with your practitioner though because there's some people who, um, particularly if they've got a bipolar or more of an inflamed brain, they wouldn't do as well. And I also find rhodiola. I find in practice rhodiola, SAMI, kava, valerian, there was one more I'm trying to think of, um, and and to some degree licorice, um, are ones that you have to be cautious with in clients that have presenting that have mental health complaints. Um, you know, sometimes they don't fare well uh, on those herbs, especially what, which was really surprising to me was rhodiola. Um, but I have a lot of clients who have anxiety who cannot take rhodiola. That's so interesting. Yeah, even though I didn't know that about rhodiola. Yeah, we see it as a mental, physical, emotional, a mental, emotional, physical uh, uh, enhancement, but uh, it, it can be quite warming. And same thing with licorice. Some clients can take Romania, but they can't take licorice. And uh, yeah, and I forgot good old withania. Oh, how could we bottle. forget withania? I know, everybody gets withania. A good old <laughs> hug in a bottle. One hug of my favorite bottle, yeah. adaptogens. Yeah, so uh, calming. Yeah, very Except common. if you're hypothyroid. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, and that's another really good um, uh, thing to bring up is that, you know, a lot of the times people will listen to these things and they'll run off and they'll try them. Um, but what they don't realize is that we don't only have the experience of having a science degree behind us, but we also have the clinical experience of using um, you know, I don't know about you, but by now I think I've popped up at least 5,000 patients, um, maybe even more, I don't know, over two decades. And so you've got all that clinical experience where you understand the, the specific person that stand, that, that's sitting in front of you and you can get an idea just by chatting with them, looking at their history and knowing what you know, what they can take and what they can't take mm -hmm. quite safely, what doses they can take, what doses. And so, you know, I'm a big advocate of making sure that you see a professional mm -hmm. if you want to take any kind of uh, supplementation, whether it be, you know, over the counter uh, or not. Yeah, because even if you do see a professional, they can still say to you what will work of the over-the-counter over, uh, over the counter or not ranges too. 
Absolutely, yeah. And you know, it's a shame because I have a lot of clients who come in and go, oh, that St. John's wort, that never works. And I said, okay, well, what did you take? And then you look at it and you go, well, that's like taking half an aspirin and expecting it to get rid of your headache and then going, aspirin just sucks. Aspirin can't get rid of headaches. So all medications must not work. (laughs) Absolutely. And so, you know, you go, well, you need the higher dose than that. Um, And quality, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so that's that's the other thing is that we know how much the gut affects the mind, but if we are doing anything that upsets the gut, like taking supplements that have got thickeners or fillers or lubricants in them that are actually really hard on our tummy, then that could be worsening the whole issue as well. So taking good quality supplements is pretty important and and also just the quantity of things that you're taking too like I don't know about you but I always try and really if I'm going to be recommending supplements I try and really limit it absolutely um, prioritize it yeah yeah me too I get excited when I can take things away Uh, they're like oh don't take that I need that for this and go no let's just try it (laughs) let's just see you might not need that Mm. yeah and you know if there's anything that that we could sort of you know in summarizing or in people, you know, really good takeaways, it is how important the the gut is and how important it is um, that, you know, what we call that, you know, uh, um, uh, microbiotic gut brain access. Yes. Um, it's so incredibly important um, that we are careful about what we put in our mouth because that's going to affect our uh, anxiety. It's going to affect, um, uh, you know, other areas of your health. Uh, and that microbiota is so important for mental health, for good mental health, nice balanced mental health. So that includes lots and lots of supplements. <laughs> yeah, good, good. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think we've just covered so much today and we've gone a little bit off topic on some areas, but, but that's okay. I think it's still still interesting. And um, we've covered you know, how much the gut and the brain are connected and how much anxiety can feed into other illnesses as well that anxious and sick merry-go-round and um, the importance of getting like a good team together as well and using um, CBT and meditation and mindfulness and herbs and if needed medications uh, and seeing a psychologist to get a proper diagnosis as well so important so thanks again Kimberly Um, I have just had such a blast and Thank you for all your wisdom that you've shared. Thank you for having me, Alison. So it's such a pleasure. All right. Have a lovely day. All right. You too. Bye. Bye.